Welcome, everybody. So today we've got a very, very special guest, uh, Trevor, Trevor Kemp, who um, has been with the company a long time and uh, is, uh, I suppose, winding up these days and, and passing on the baton. But we've, we've done a special two-part series uh, with Trevor and his time with the company. Uh, across two podcasts, you can hear from him and, and, uh, and there's a lot of gold to, to come out. So uh, stay tuned because it's pretty cool. Outside of that, you'll also hear from the management team or parts of the management team, obviously, Mick, uh, Westy, Mark, um, myself, and uh, also a special uh, section from David Simon himself. Uh, one of the things we've discussed is trying to break down the all the doomsday headlines that we do see in the press um, and uh, and talk through what all of that means, which is obviously global news, domestic news, but most importantly, what it means to our business and um, what we're planning. So put those listening ears on and uh, away we go. Welcome to Behind the Wheel, a podcast exclusively created for our team. Stay up to date with the latest industry trends and company news directly from David Simon and the team. Whether you're a driver on the road, working in the office or on the floor, this podcast is just for you. So sit back, relax and get ready to discover something new. All right, so here is our first attempt of Behind the Wheel. Is that what we're calling it? Behind the wheel. First I heard was five minutes ago, but yeah, behind the wheel. <laughs> With our CEO, David Simon. Welcome. Mick West, National Transport Manager. Morning. National Warehouse Manager, Mark Beery. Morning. And through these episodes, we're always going to have one special guest and I don't know how we're going to beat this first special guest because he's our longest serving employee. Have I got that right? Yes. We don't know how many years. <laughs> um, the the abacus from the early days is lost, so we've, we've lost some years in the early days, but between 40 to 45 years, uh, and that's Trevor Kemp, who's uh, re- retired full-time and uh, on our books as a casual at the moment, about to do a bit, little bit of travel as well. All right, so Trev. Hi. Thanks for the introduction. <laughs> the kind we've, words. We've... Um, I suppose a few of us were lucky enough to have a, a dinner with Trev last night, and there's a few other functions still still to come to celebrate the uh, 40 to 45 years. We will work out. Maybe that can be a, a goal for the next uh, couple of dinners to work out exactly how many years Trev's done with the company. But yep. uh, nonetheless, no mean feat and very rare in this day and age that uh, people can go that far um, in, in, in the one, one job. I'd have to go into my 70s, I think, or 80s to hit that figure <laughs> in terms of uh, years in the one gig. So, yeah, it's 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 obviously a, a really good achievement. Um, and, from, yeah, from the company's perspective also, that's uh, – uh, a very long tenure in a, in a critical role um, uh, that, that you've ended up in. So, Trev, <coughs> got a couple of questions. I agree right, you a little bit. Right. I've given you <laughs> some to prepare for, but uh, the, the others will be a little, little bit improv. But I suppose the, the early days uh, when you first started with Simon, um, what are some memories that stick with you uh, from those very early days? How did it start? Okay, so it started out, um, my first impression of the company uh, with um, the um, 
meeting I had with uh, the then fleet manager, John Freeman. Uh, I just he just come across to me as a person with uh, very good uh, procedures, ideas, um, his balance of work and doing the right thing all the time was um, it just come across to me as this is going to be a really good place to work. Um, uh, so and then to meet all the other people uh, in that that first instance, like the staff in the workshop and uh, the managers. The operation manager and also the CEO, uh, just so friendly and just welcomed me into the company, just uh, with open arms to say, you know, like uh, we're happy to have you here. Um, and the offer of training was uh, always there, um, and I just probably excelled in more than what I had ever imagined. That I'd never worked on a, a heavy duty vehicle before. So it was a bit of an achievement to actually go in there and start working on on Kenworth with V12 engines, and, um, you know, road range gearboxes that I'd never touched before. So it was just uh, – that's probably um, – to me that brings back a lot of good memories. Uh, and then it's just flowed on from there. So it's just – it worked on forklifts that I'd never done. They had a huff in the, in the depot there that used to lift all the logs and worked on that. and. Um, it's just amazing to actually work on the equipment that you don't have the opportunity to work on if you if I'd have stayed where I was just doing light vehicles. Um, so yeah, that was a good start for me. So, and so we've got our first blooper. I don't think I introduced Trevor uh, properly either. He's a, a national fleet manager. Um, it, was is uh, yeah? <laughs> was it full time full time capacity? Um, but that first role, so you came in as a mechanic, mechanic straight yeah, away. First up as a mechanic and. Um, and like I said, I, I didn't do uh, heavy-duty vehicles. I did light vehicles and I did a course in hydraulics after TAFE. I did a course in welding, but that wasn't um, a big course. Just to, I wanted to learn how to weld properly because you know, I know how uh, important welding fabrication and uh, all that stuff is with with industry. So um, and when I joined uh, Simon National Carriers or Simon Transport back then, it was called. Um, I let John know that I didn't have a lot of skills in the heavy stuff, but I knew enough. I could rebuild engines, I could rebuild gearboxes and um, autos and um, electrical work. I was pretty good at. So he said, oh, "You're fine. You can have a start." So, um, and that was in March 1978. So Morgan Simon was the CEO at the time, founder of the company. Yes. You mentioned John Freeman, David. You, yeah, have you got any shares, any stories to share between John and John and Morgan? <laughs> Uh, John and John and Morgan were actually <clears throat> best mates at school. school yeah. Certainly played up a lot at school. Condi's crystals in pools, cutting wiring to PAs in the in the school. Um, lots of visits to the headmaster together. <laughs> so they went their separate ways. Uni and Dad dropped out of uni and went jackarooing. John, I think, did an engineering degree, but when Dad got back into the timber and hardware business, started pole supplies that led to purchasing a truck. I think Dad got John to come and work with him to give Dad's grandfather, Dad's father and his uncles some confidence that Dad had some knowledge about these truck things that Dad really didn't have any <laughs> skills with. So John was the expert. John gave family confidence that Dad could actually run some trucks. Uh, and pr- I, I and directly in line with all the, you know, the family pieces that we talk about so much and yeah, there's some origins of it right there, going uh, right right back to the start. 
Trevor, we'll jump across to um, you've got a couple of stories to to share with us uh, that, have, that have stood out with you over time. Um, kick off with your first one that uh, that you got to share. Okay, um, stories. So probably um, I used to do a lot of uh, once I got into the actual repairs, I knew the way around a truck and a trailer, and um, and uh, things started going very well. Uh, I used to do a few call-outs. So one of the call-outs I did, I had to go down to Bogabilla. It was a Detroit engine. It, um, the compressor stopped working, so it had no air supply. So uh, talking to the driver, he said, oh, look, it's just making a noise and um, and it's just not going anywhere. So back then, it, Bogabilla wasn't that far, so I just uh, would load all the parts up Um you couldn't get mechanics back then. It's just uh, very, very rare to have someone come out and do work on the side of the road. So, you know, it basically had to be towed or um, – so. Or you drove four hours. <laughs> yeah, drove four hours, yeah. <laughs> so took the parts down um, on the side of the road, did the job, um, uh, got the driver going again and and um, happy days. So it was just uh, – those sort of things really stand out as achieving something – it, um, it's it's good for the company. It's uh, I know it's it's a long time to be away from the the workplace, but um, I think it, recovery was fairly short. So we've had a lot longer recoveries where the, the vehicles had to be towed. Um, getting tow trucks is quite expensive, um, but over long distances, especially like I remember one tow bill was eleven thousand dollars from Mount Isa. Um, so it's but that was an engine. Failure, so we couldn't really do much about it. Other stories, um, I think we touched on dropping trailers last night, and I, one of our better drivers, Pat Tracy, which I think you all remember, is, yep. is a very good operator. Um, he called me one Saturday afternoon and said, "Oh, look, he was in the Toowoomba Depot, and he was just going to Sydney. I think he was doing a market run, and um, he said, oh, look, something wrong with the turntable. I just dropped the trailer." So I came in, and, and I couldn't believe it first. It, Pat would do that. So he, I got in there and I had a look and I said, what happened? You know, did you check everything when you hooked up? And he said, oh, the only thing I didn't do, I didn't check the jaw. So I had a look at it and um, it, everything looked fine. I couldn't find a problem with it. So I, in best case scenario, I just said, look, you jump into another truck. He had his own truck that he always used to like driving. He jumped in another truck and took off and, um, and turned table was pulled apart and, but couldn't find any problem with it. So, um, but we replaced the jaw and the and the lock bar and everything else just to be on the safe side. So, um, but those sort of things, um, it's 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 an ongoing problem uh, and one that I think drivers don't appreciate the the importance of hooking up procedure. Yeah, it's it's a it's a most important part of hooking up a semi trailer. Like you make sure that connection's done properly and. Um, and to save all the hassle, it's just uh, to try and lift a heavy load trailer. It was lucky that um, it wasn't that heavy, so and you could actually lift it up mm. with a big forklift. So, yeah, so that's a couple of all exciting. right. Favorite truck? Favorite truck? <laughs> well, actually, I just I really like the V twelve Kenworths, but uh, it's not my favorite truck. They were they were a nice truck. Powerful. They did the job really well. They had torsion bar suspension back then, um, and they had a soft ride. 
they just yeah, grunt. They could pull four or five trailers, no worries at all. And I remember. How often were they doing that, Trevor? Uh, quite often, David. Is that legal? Have you seen illegal? photos? They used to, you remember the stiff bars? Yeah, when it was they used, yeah, they used stuck in the mud trying to push and pull each other through, yes. Three road trains together and just. Uh, yeah. They, you'd, Including the trucks. B12 would be at the front, yeah, plus, plus the trucks, yeah. It's still a lot of drag to uh, pull that much weight. So In the mud. Yeah, in the mud, yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, but in saying that, I think uh, the Volvo, especially uh, the European truck, when they, we first entered that into the fleet, it uh, proved to be a, a winner, very comfortable, very safe. Uh, the engine emission control was excellent back in those days. So that's a 420 we started with, 420 then the 460. And I think uh, that's probably uh, back when Simon's realised that that was the way to go with uh, the safety features, uh, the comfort and the emission control just uh, was too good to knock back. So continued on with that that type of vehicle and uh, now we have a fleet of um, Volvo, Scania, Mercedes-Benz and Iveco. So, um, Worst truck, Trev. You can say it now because <laughs> <laughs> careful. <laughs> Very careful what you say, Trev. <laughs> I, I don't really have a worse truck, Artie, so I can't say that <laughs> I would – he realised it's not what you said off record. <laughs> <laughs> All right, always great to catch up with Trev and um, yeah, share, share some stories over the years. And uh, obviously, we're in a period of celebrating the forty to forty-five years he's done with the company, um, starting from nineteen seventy-eight. Uh, over uh, he left after a little bit and and, and came back, but yeah, no, great to hear from Trev. Uh, now make sure you listen into episode two, where we go for a uh, a part two with Trev, um, which is a continuation of that discussion. All right, so uh, and I, I suppose on that topic of tenure and um, years worked with the company, um, one one little statistic that stood out when we were were filming the. Christmas video with David in uh, 2022 was an, a number which, um, yeah, I was I was blown away by when, when I saw it. So we've got 365 staff roughly at, at the moment on our books, but the big number is the combined years of service uh, when you when you tally those 365 staff. That number is 2,229 years of combined service as Simon employees, which is an incredible number um, and really goes back uh, on one of our, um, I suppose, when, when we're going to market, that whole pitch around experience that, that we do have and and uh, uh, the specialised experience in the markets that we, um, uh, we're strongest in. We need to keep in mind that number is only the number of years since 1998 with this payroll system, 1999. I- July 1, 1999. So it's actually a lot more than like Trevor. We don't, we had, can't capture his hours prior to that. My hours, Robin Corkwell, and others that have been with us much longer. Which is a pretty good point because we've got um, some of the long term stats are still 28 staff members that have uh, done more than 20 years with the company. So a lot, that's a lot of what you're talking about. And uh, there's 67 staff that have done uh, between 10 and 20 years. Um, so some, that's a third of our our staff. It's uh, greater than ten years, which is some um, yeah. We must be doing something right 
for people to be sticking around and, and uh, obviously there's uh, a lot of values alignment with um, a big chunk of our, our staff base. Yeah, people are doing something right for others to want to stick and work with them. So, Yeah, absolutely. All right, so this next little part here, um, one of the uh, key objectives of, of the podcast is, is try and talk about uh, world events at the moment, domestic events, um, cut through the doom and gloom that we see in the headlines and in the press if you open news.com or go to Courier Mail or The Age or, or whatever and just make it relevant to our business, um, uh, what it means for us right now and and uh, how we're planning to um, proceed through that. So I suppose the, f- the first step of that is to take a, a step back and understand why we're in the position we're in at the moment. And if we go back to uh, well, exactly three years ago when it was all, uh, all doom and gloom, um, at that point in time, I remember reading an email from you, David, in, in our management meetings around uh, having to stand down all staff potentially and, and we were planning around that uh, if the country was going to be completely locked down. Uh, they were the discussions that were being had. There was no discussion at all at that point around what incentives were going to come out for the government or any um, uh, cash stimulus that would help anyone at all. Um, and, uh, yeah, they were the, the, the big anxiety inducing conversations that everyone was having, not only us, uh, as a business. Yeah, if we go back then, and it's probably something we haven't shared, but yeah, we were looking at the possibility of zero income at having to stand down staff be- before there was a government job keeper. Um, it would have just been unemployment benefits for staff. We were modeling, uh, just how we would survive, how long we could survive with zero income. We still had leases to pay and all that sort of thing. I think we had about seven months of being able to stay afloat yep. before we would have folded um, yep. with no government assistance. Mm. We were better off with that than dropping 50% of our income and staying operating. Though We would have only survived three or four months. Mm-hmm. So, yep. Yeah, absolutely. They were, they were really tough times, big dilemmas. Mm. And then the government came along and provided stimulus. Yeah, of which um, was the next part. So, uh, the, yeah, of some of the key ones that stood out were the the nation builder incentive, the twenty five grand um, for building new or renovating. Um, we had the instant asset write off that came in uh, not long after that. We had access to super. Um, we had the the insolvency pieces where where companies could trade insolvent for for a period of time. We had job keeper, job seeker. Um, we basically had a lot of money floating around the country, heaps of it all of a sudden, and uh, things turned very quickly. Um, what happened in the world at the exact same time was the pandemic was playing out and, and lockdowns were, uh, were eventuating in factories all around the world. So if you want to talk through that, David, that period there. and Well, I think, yeah, there's the two factors, and I think the money slushing around is probably the one that we're feeling the impacts of now because it wasn't just Australia. Every government around the world was pumping lots of cash into the economies, making debt available to banks to loan, governments grants, uh, massive amounts of capital. And we saw that in Australia probably more than a lot of other countries. We, we had a lot of personal stimu- stimulus here. Um, there was a lot of spending happening here. At the same time, as you said, factories were shutting down. So some of our customers were sourcing product from overseas from factories that were shut in Italy and Japan, where the economy is effectively shut. They did a lot of what we were modelling and there was just no production. So demand was massive because everybody had so much cash. Government was deliberately wanting people to spend money to keep the economy going. There was a lot of talk, if anybody read the financial papers, about 
Have they got the balance right? Is it too much? Is it going too long? Are we stimulating the economy too much? And is there going to be a, some repercussions for that long term? And that's probably where we are now. Um, production's coming back around the world. That stimulus and all that spending was good. It was great spending, but it brought forward a lot of spending. Mm-hmm. And it caused a lot of inflation that we're now dealing with now. Prices have gone up enormously because demand was greater than supply. And cars were bought, motorbikes, jet skis, boats, whatever. Looking at Mick when I say boats. Tractors. Uh, <laughs> but demand has dropped off and is dropping off now um, because people brought forward spending. Uh, inflation's easing to some degree around different parts of the world. Used car prices, new car prices. It's still difficult to buy a new car and expect any sort of negotiation from the salesperson. But I think in the next six months, we'll see that start to ease. That pressure is coming off and inflation is starting to ease. It's still Things are still going up at a greater rate than we'd normally see, but it's not not as intense as it was. And it's you know, the signs that they've got, at least the Reserve Bank, what they're endeavouring to do uh, is starting to work. Mm. It's going to take some time yet, though, and we're, we will see. There's a lot of talk about recession, and I think worldwide some countries will go into recession. Australia, I don't think we'll see a recession, but it's probably going to be like the um, global financial crisis. We didn't go into recession in Australia, but that was largely because mining kept the Australian economy overall booming. Mm. We did see consumer spending soften. Mm. We're seeing that now. Any any transport carrier that does retail sort of product, um, food or um, just discretionary spending, those carriers are seeing a slowdown. We're seeing it in some areas you know, some parts, construction is easing, subdivisions have stopped. So some of our customers that uh, rely on subdivisions for, for a lot of their product to go into, there's no Ford order book for that anymore. So we're going to see some, we're going to see some softening in the months ahead mm. around that area. But I think overall, we're pretty well exposed across our customer base. The housing shortage is probably the biggest single problem Australia has. Inflation starting to ease, but we still have a massive housing shortage. It's that lack of subdivisions because investors won't buy land and develop. There's no high-rise apartments or very few relative to historical numbers of apartments being built. That's causing a housing shortage. At the same time, we've got massive immigration, 300,000, 350,000 people coming into Australia this year and next year. So 650,000 people that need homes and we're not building as many homes as we historically do. That's got to give. We, we've got a lot of exposure to construction and to apartments and probably commercial office as well as infrastructure, but that slowdown we're seeing with subdivisions can't last for too long. Government's mm. got to provide some stimulus. They've got to get the balance right, hopefully, but we've got to see governments making it easier to, to borrow money to invest or to, to invest in housing. To do subdivisions, the bureaucracy and the costs in subdividing land and building homes now, some of the safety standards um, that have just... They're drowning the housing construction industry now. Mm. Um, things have got to change and we'll, we'll see that. Those houses have to be built. We can't have you know, the growth we've seen in homeless is horrible. Mm. The people that are renting that are being forced out of rents, forced out of homes, having to move, having to move to, a, to find a place and find a place at a much higher rate, that can't go on. It's, it's cruel. Mm. And government will stop that, I've got no doubt. Yeah, got to get the incentives right. Yeah, and then uh, so what I'm hearing out of that is relevant to our business. <clears throat> Some of our key clients are directly exposed to that sector, um, and where, where the, there's growth there, we'll we'll, uh, we'll ride on the back of that. Yeah, 
yeah, we'll we'll see volumes. I think we will see some volumes easing in the next three to six months. But we've also got a lot of opportunities for new work we've been holding off. We've had no capacity to take on new work, new warehousing or new transport for the last two or three years because we've been flat out struggling with the record volumes that our existing customer base has been moving. Mm, mm. So we've held a lot of customers back. Um, we've seen uh, – we're in Brisbane recording this and uh, we've got one major customer exiting – the warehouse here, but we've got half a dozen customers that are lined up and will largely fill that space over the coming months. Some are already uh, moving their product in. Um, and Artie, you'll talk about some of those. But whilst we'll see some easing in some areas, I think we'll backfill that with opportunities we've got and then we'll see some growth from those other customers that have that infrastructure and house and apartment construction. Yeah, yeah. And uh, probably one of the other key things is the uh, cost of shipping during that period of time as well. And when we when we look at um, cost of living at the moment and how much of that's flown through, there was a, there was a point in time during 21, uh, even even last year, 2022, when containers out of China were costing how much more, yeah, David? 14,000, 15,000 US dollars a container, <laughs> whereas and, they're typically around pre-COVID $1,500 a 40-foot container. Yeah. So, yeah, 10 times. And we're now back to sort of below historical levels. The, the shipping lines are struggling for volume. Yeah. Because that discretionary spending has slowed here. Yeah. Because a lot, of, a lot of retailers are overstocked. Yeah. Massively so in the US. Uh, so volumes to the US have, have really dried up. The shipping lines have got boats and capacity and they're discounting to fill those. Yeah. It's supply and demand working. It's too. turned so but rapidly. Exactly right. So at a point in time there, the, the cost to import a container from China was 10 times as much as it was a couple of years prior. Then on top of that, the only way people could import because of the demand and how much product people were trying to get into the country there were big gluts of volume um, coming in, if you recall. And surges. There, there's some uh, companies out there that have ended up with millions of dollars of detention charges. And probably for our broader audience, deten- maybe talk about detention charges and what they are and if they can be avoided. Well, we've got Mark here. Mark can talk to that. <laughs> Essentially, detention charges are when ships are coming in and they're not getting uh, unloaded quick enough. And uh, um, there's there's one part that where the ship's holding stock or waiting to be to be berthed there's an on charge there that often goes to the, back to the customer and then once uh, once it hits the actual wharf bringing it out and clearing it and turning it around um, there's charges on the other side if the turnaround's not quick enough so um, unfortunately well, you know a few of our clients have actually hit at both ends because uh, um, during the capacity issues um, they were having to buy larger larger uh, uh, quantities of space on on vessels to bring bring in um, products. So where you have a you know typically you might bring in forty containers and they'll bring in eighty in a, um, shipment. in a shipment. And there was inconsistency with the patterns of how the ships were coming in. So we used to have a little bit of a, an even flow with it. Then we were starting to see eighty turn up today, another eighty tomorrow, another eighty the next day, and we weren't alone in that space either um so the flow in impact with that was just uh obviously uh the the stevedore is just passing on and the shipping lines passing on all that cost because they had contracts that allowed them to do it and they uh unfortunately uh even um you know it would have been nice to have some government intervention in it that didn't happen but um um there was there was no way out of it you you had to pay and you're, you're talking you know 250 300 bucks a day and it keeps increasing the longer you don't, you know, get that box cleared and turned around. So, you know, we're hearing of cases where, you know, companies were adding seven figures to their bottom line 
in cost, you know, in three three to six month periods, and you know that has to be absorbed somehow, and you know, somehow they they will pass it on, and we as consumers end up paying for it. So, and then further on to that, those gluts of volume were coming in, and uh, of course, once that product's in the country, it's got to be distributed to the end consumer, mm. which then causes the problem. Westy on the transport front uh, around that amount of volume lumps that were going through over the last couple of years and um, so the challenges around that and the driver availability but also um, subcontractor availability and subcontractor prices what it did to that. Yeah, and I guess we only have a limited pool of, uh, of trucks ourselves and so we were relying heavily on, uh, on subby base, especially for wharf cartage and stuff like that. But like Mark said, the volumes were just uh, huge. Yeah, just couldn't keep up with it. So the knock-on effect, and then delivery delays, and you know it's not so bad today, but we're still experiencing large volumes for some customers, and um, some freight's hard to move, hard to handle, wide loads. There's only so many you can do in a week. But uh, yeah, resources are still a struggle. I think personally, from from the transport side of things, yeah. You touched on wide load, Mick, wide loads, Mick, but um, we're seeing a. A lot of steel coming into Brisbane at the moment the last six months because the shipping lines can't ship uh, bulk steel into other locations. That, you know, they want to bring one shipload into one port rather than a shipload into two or three ports. So we're getting big volumes of wide plate into Brisbane that's needing to be to be moved. Yeah. Are you coping with it? No, not really. I mean, the customer's probably understanding enough, which is which is great for us. But, um, yeah, I think we're still you know, a fair way behind in moving that sort of freight. I know some of um, John's customers in particular, you know, their freights ended up in Sydney. It's meant to be in Perth and they've taken them off boats and we're talking, you know, massive dump trucks that got to go to Tasmania and stuff like that. They're in the wrong ports and all that sort of stuff and it's just bad luck. We've unloaded the ship. It goes back to the customer to move that and it comes back to us, pressurised, you know, for us to move it. So everything just seems to be a juggle every day. Every day something different comes up and someone's freight's in the wrong place and it's it's not our fault. It's the wharfs. They're unloading where they want to unload. Mm. They're turning their ships around and going. They're just dumping still a lot of ship queuing, various yeah. wharfs, and some yeah. are bypassing wharfs and going to the next state as yeah. well. So oh, you, you spoke live, about you live down by the bay, Mark. Look, oh, I look out Port Phillip Bay, and yeah. you know I can see seven to ten container ships lined up out there quite regularly. And I always says, you know, I always think, oh god, next couple of weeks are going to be horrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the container ships aren't really the problem. Now. There's still some delays and still some. Gluts in volume, but the real issue around the world, rates for, for container ships or shipping containers have dropped enormously, as we've spoken about, but the RORO, the roll-on, roll-off ships that carry cars, mobile equipment, the bigger bulk stuff like the, the dump trucks Mick's talking about, they're still in massive short supply. Before Christmas, you couldn't book a slot out of Europe to Asia in the first quarter of this calendar year. They were fully booked out. And there's you know, multiple of those ships turning up in Australia every day, but that capacity has been booked out that far in advance. A lot of delays through the quarantine issues with them as well because yeah. a lot of the vehicles were parked in mm. um, paddocks and so forth and mm. got soil and yep. seeds all over them. So yep. biosecurity won't let them in until they're fully clean. So, And part of that shipping delay also is the amount of ships that are physically available and uh, how old they are in, in – um, in age uh, versus the new stuff coming in. So that problem is going to be there for a little while yet. Yeah. There's been no ships ordered in the last few years. Um, they haven't been able to be built. So there is a few years of ship production gone, mm. particularly in Roro. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose to um, 
to top all that off has been the natural disasters that we've had uh, over the last few years as well, which have taken out key bits of infrastructure at any point in time. Um, the rail line to WA has been cut quite a few times. One was a couple of months from memory. Yep. Um, <clears throat> the Broken Hill washout, which basically cut any rail service from Brisbane and Sydney directly yep. across and made that unavailable. Everything had to go through Melbourne as a bottleneck um, or road. And then there was a derailment just west of Melbourne, Melbourne. Geelong, that yeah. closed that, that everything for another yeah. three or four weeks. So. Yeah. We, we had no rail, absolutely no rail yeah. in the end here. What all of this means is these are the natural disaster can happen at any point in time, but a lot of the rest has uh, really is is um, a hangover from the pandemic and uh, and and what it meant uh, for different industries and different sectors in the supply chain over the last last few years. Mm-hmm. They're not normal events, and they've driven a lot of cost into um, our industry. We obviously need to absorb that, uh, pass it on, and our clients and our customers as well. Yeah, um, you, you said natural disasters can happen any time, but we've been railing to Western Australia as our predominant mode for 30-plus years now. The last two years, we've never seen a, a year like last year, and this year was 10 times worse. The, the lack of, of ability to ship was just not there, and we've not seen that. We've seen short breaks with derailments, flooding, that sort of thing over the years. Every, yep. every three or five years, you have something, but it might be for a couple of weeks, mm. not not the extent of what we've seen this year. Yeah, and what it means for us is we can't put all of our fleet on the road to go and service Perth directly because then the East Coast suffers. You can you can supplement with some and it's no different to the subcontractor market as well. But even the subcontractor market, I remember um, you know, people wanting as much as between 15 and 25 grand a trailer from the East Coast um, to, to go across, which is you know, trying to cover a round-trip cost um, on, on those on those bases. All that cost has got to go somewhere, and this is probably what it's what we're talking about at this point in time. But again, I uh, suppose if you look at <coughs> with with all that said, um, the, the the key point for right now is that we need um, we need a lot more homes built. We need a lot more subdivisions. Um, we need some government uh, intervention there, and, and they have to do it because they can't afford to have a lot of people homeless at the end of the day um, and we're directly linked to those uh, services and companies that are um, delivering into that sector, which is a positive for, for our for our client base. The other part too is those particular clients that we're talking about, we still have some strong – we know that they have strong order books based on the delays and uh, they are still flowing through for another five to six months. Um, the next part will be what happens with the government and you know, the, the remainder of developments over the next few years. We haven't touched on the amount of infrastructure projects either going on at the moment. And there is a lot happening in our projects division with what they've got on the books, with yeah, what John's got on the books and defence is probably worthwhile touching on that too. Yeah, there's clearly a lot of road infrastructure that has been announced and is being built in the last four or five years as freeways, as underground rail in most major cities or most East Coast cities. All that obvious infrastructure, project logistics have a what would appear to be a very strong, likely forward order book with the, the amount of water projects around the country in the next five years. There is a contract which we should see in the next couple of days for a significant project into central Queensland from Melbourne and Perth. Um, I guess around hydrogen, and that one is somewhat hydrogen related, with a pilot plant going up in Gladstone. Um, if hydrogen takes off the way it's expected to, there's going to be a lot of need for, for water infrastructure, desal plants, all those sort of things that we get heavily involved in. Defence have done not a lot of training the last few years, so defence is certainly making a lot of inquiries about capacity and our capacity to service major training 
exercises over the next 12 months. We're concerned and we're expressing our concern to them that the capacity is just not there with industry, particularly while we're still recovering you know, rail outages and that sort of thing and so much contractor capacity diverted to that route. Mm. Yep. Yep. And, and the other one over the horizon as well is uh, the, the move, and I know we'll do a separate session on electric vehicles and um, what that means for heavy vehicle space and, and how that looks forward. But ultimately, it is the way we're headed, the world is headed at the moment, but that power has got to come from somewhere. Um, and that's where, again, if you look at the clients that we have and, and their exposure, one of the key ones is, is, is Prismian cables. You know, that, that power has to move from a power plant through to grids um, via, via some movement. So if we keep that, those relationships strong with, with those clients, we, we, um, we're in a really good position to keep progressing uh, at the rate that we have been in, uh, in, in recent years. So episode one done. I think we did okay. It only took about twenty minute, minutes for me to announce who I was as the, as the as the host. Um, uh, but but other than that, uh, we've had a little bit of, bit of fun here today, and hopefully we've uh, added some value to all of our listeners. So. In episodes to come, we've got uh, a variety of topics that we do want to cover, but if you have any suggestions and um, you do want some specific topics covered, so email us back directly on podcasts at simon.com.au. And also, if you have any suggestions on Simon staff um, to have as as the special, now that can be past or present. Um, but ultimately those that you're interested to hear from and and, uh, and listen as, as part of this um, podcast series. So thanks for tuning in and um, look forward to episode two in weeks to come. Mm-hmm.